Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today, Chuck is in Florida enjoying the warm sun there, I assume. My name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but you're stuck with me. I'm still your host. Today with me on our panel, we have Dan Shapiro. Hi, from still warm and sunny Tel Aviv. I am so jealous. Well, it's actually sunny here still. It's like mid-October in Oregon and everybody's going, where's our cool weather? I'm like, yes. Oh, we did, we did have a few drops of rain, but it was a warm rain. We were walking around in T-shirts. We still walk around in T-shirts, so, you know, got to love the Israeli weather. Oh, yes. And then coming from the Purple Room, AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live the jungle of <laughs> from tab. the Jungle of Tabs. Tab, tab, not Tab the soft drink for anybody who might be thinking that. I don't think anybody's thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you grew up in the 80s, maybe you are. And finally, our guest, the one, the only... The JavaScript guru, Kent C. Dodds. How are you doing, Kent? Hey, everybody. I'm super happy to be here. Super so, happy to have you. Yes, we are. We are. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So before we get going, why, for those of us who might not know who Kent C. Dodds is, Kent, why don't you give a little background <laughs> on who you are? Who are they? Those people. <laughs> There are definitely plenty of people listening right now who don't know who I am, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I am a software developer, been in the business. I graduated in 2014, started doing software development a little bit before that. So I, I've been about a decade almost doing this web stuff. And I've worked at a, a number of companies, probably the most recognizable would be PayPal. I was there for a couple of years, shipped apps to millions of people all over the world. And then I decided to go full-time teacher and I spent three years as a full-time educator. I built testingjavascript.com and epicreact.dev. And then I spent a year as a co-founder and develop, director of developer experience at Remix, which we'll talk about today. And then a couple months ago, or about a month ago, I left Remix to go back to full-time teaching because I have this really big, big project I've been wanting to work on for years, and I just can't do it all. So I have I have to focus all of my time on epicweb.dev, and that's what I'm working on now. So epicweb.dev, is that the URL of epicweb.dev? Yes, yeah. So the idea is we want to turn you into an epic web dev. Brilliant. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I finally will be one. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, Kent, you brought up epicweb.dev, so now we have to talk about that. So what is it? Yeah, so I've been, I've been teaching web uh, topics since even before I graduated in 2014. I gave my first workshop on AngularJS to my my classmates. I, I convinced Firebase to sponsor pizza so people would show up. And so 
teaching has just been a big part of what I've been doing forever. And for many years, I've just taught lots of different uh, topics on the things that I uh, was particularly interested in. But for a long time, I've wanted to have just one place that had all of the knowledge that I have about the web in one place and in a cohesive format so that somebody could start having no knowledge of how to program at all, going all the way to being having all the knowledge that I have, uh, basically being able to be a full stack engineer, building apps at uh, on their own or at a big enterprise company like I've done before. And so that's kind of the idea of Epic Web Dev. Whatever you're thinking it is, it's multiply its size and scope by about 10 because it is enormous. And I'm planning on working on it for the next two, maybe three years before it's actually completed. The As far as like what it's like, uh, anybody who's taken epicreact.dev, gone through that curriculum, knows that when I say it's big, I, I mean it. That series of workshops should take people about 14 weeks to complete. This one I'm, I'm thinking could take six months to a year to complete for anybody going through at a dedicated pace. And the like specifics of how it works is you have workshops that um, have exercises and you work through each one of these exercises with paired with videos from me and until you get it through it all and, and you start building your own stuff. So it's pretty, pretty big. And I, I like there's more to say about it, but uh, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, cool. It's really interesting. But just to understand exactly what you're describing uh, this is going to be an online course that, that I'm going to, let's say, if I enroll to that, is that something that I do at my own pace in your website? Or is it something that, you know, also involves kind of online, say, real-time sessions? Or is that something yeah. that exists but is optional? Like, w- what does all this stuff include? Yeah, great question. So, it uh, there will be a number of pieces of content on there. I actually just published today the first piece of content that's a, a blog post. It's called The Web's Next Transformation. I'd love to talk about that some more as well. But there will also be podcasts. There will be interviews that I will do with with experts who evaluate what I have built and and give me feedback on that. And then will the the main bulk of it, the uh, what you're paying for, is these self paced workshops where I give you a, a GitHub repo that you clone. Like, so we're going to have beginner material on here. So there'll be like, I've never done any software development in my life. And so for those people, uh, we'll probably have some in-browser exercises and stuff like that. And then I'll also teach how to like set up a development environment and everything. And so then you get to that point. And now we're cloning GitHub repos and stuff. And you're, you're running it locally on your machine in the same work environment that you are going to be working in as a, a regular developer. I know there are a lot of really cool education sites that have these very interesting in-browser editors and stuff. And I think that's interesting, but I'm interested in helping you develop the skills that you're going to be using on the job and you're not going to be using an in-browser editor like on the job. So I want you working in the environment that you're going to be working in. So that's why we have you download a, a repo and work in your own IDE. <laughs> but that sounds like hard work. Yeah, actually, that's that's a very important aspect to what I do. On, on Epic React, part of the, the copy that we have on the homepage is talking about how important it is that uh, this is going to be hard, and it needs to be hard because learning has to be hard. You, you cannot learn easily. If your experience in learning is easy, then you're probably not actually learning. And so especially for complicated stuff like web development. And so the the trick for an instructor is how to give people enough of a challenge that they actually learn, but not so much that they give up. And so that is what the skill that I've developed over the 
several years that I've been doing this. And so, yes, Epic Web Dev will be hard, There will, but there will be enough guidance there. Another thing that I do as just on the side, it's not something you pay for, but I do the office hours every Friday that I'm available and people can just come in and ask me uh, questions and things. But what I do in preparation for creating Epic Reactor, uh, what Epic Web Dev is going to do, is I will actually de- develop the workshops and then uh, deliver these workshops at least three times each so that I have some experience of actually teaching it with people so I can preemptively answer the questions that people are asking. Uh, I also get feedback on each one of the exercises. And so I have, have feedback like probably uh, 10 to 20,000 items of feedback that people have given me on exercises so that I can really solidify them before I actually record them. And so what you actually get from Epic Web Dev is very solid teaching so that you can retain what you're learning. And I, I can preemptively answer the questions that you have. In, in addition to just the videos, there's also written instruction that can be updated and, and reworded as as people provide feedback as well. So yeah, it's it's pretty big. And And I should also mention that like, well, like I said, it is that there is so much in there, it will probably be 20 to 30 workshops. Um, so there is a lot that we're going to be covering for sure. So if somebody is interested in expanding their knowledge, so that is it like they pick and choose the workshops that they want? Or is it like you have like a recommended curriculum for getting from certain point A to a certain point B? How how do you actually pick what it is that you need to learn, especially when you don't know what it is that you need to learn? Yeah, well, see, that's that's the thing is a lot of people don't know what they need to learn and, and they think they do. And so for Epic React, for example, we have, there are 11 workshops in total. Well, the content that's uh, that can be represented by 11 workshops, technically there are eight, but the last one it can be split into four. But yeah, so the way we we structure that is for one tier, the lower tier, you get like two or three workshops. And then the next year you get a couple more. And then the last year you get all of them. And I've had a lot of people who say, I just want to be able to pick and choose the workshops that I want. And that's, I I understand what's driving that you want to be able to save money and and just focus on the things that you want. But a lot of people just, I I have had people who've been working with React for six or seven years, and they will uh, go through the beginner material and be blown away by how much they learn. So I'm sorry, but you need this beginner material too. When we, in my mind, the the right way to learn something on the job is to just learn as much as you need to know for the job that you're trying to do and then push forward. Because uh, we could spend our entire lives learning every single little thing there is, but if we never actually ship anything, then like, what good is it anyway? And so it's it's a very natural and I think a, a reasonable way to learn is just to learn the bare minimum for what you need for what you're doing and then ship. But when you're like, okay, no, I really want to level up. I want to learn this stuff. Then there are just like so many holes in our knowledge of like the necessary learnings for shipping. There are so many holes that are left there that even going through the beginner material is going to be useful to you. So we don't really know what the pricing structure is going to be or, or how we uh, deliver all of this stuff ultimately. And so I, I'm not going to make any promises on that, uh, but it will probably be similar to what we've had, what I did with uh, Epic React, uh, where you each tier just unlocks more of the content and you won't be able to just pick and choose. And I should also mention that because this is going to take such a long time for me to create, I am going to probably release it in chunks because I need to make this sustainable. Like I need to make money as as we go. <laughs> so so the but the the way that I'm going to release this is because I want things to build on each other. 
I need to actually work backwards so that I can say, okay, so here's here's the final thing and we'll just work on some stuff to get there. And then I'll work backwards to what what does it take to get to that point? And we'll we'll build all the stuff to get to that point. So the chunk, I will probably release the most advanced stuff first and then we'll go to the intermediate stuff and the beginner stuff. And then, uh, and then I will quit and I will never do anything <laughs> ever again because I, I'll just be done. <laughs> no, it does sound like a Herculean task, I have to say. It, it's, it's, it's daunting, let's put it this yeah, way. Yeah, it, it, it kind of is. <laughs> but I think it's really important that, that <laughs> yeah. once you've achieved perfection, yeah. you um, stop right then. Yeah, the yeah. thing is, I've, I, I'm kind that's, of curious, that's a good mentality. Way, is Epic React part of this, or is it like a separate entity, or how? How? what will be the relation between the two? Yeah, great question. A lot of people wonder that about testingjavascript.com as well. So no, it will not be, at least the current plan is it will not be included. They will be separate, and Epic React and Testing JavaScript will continue to serve people uh, very uh, helpfully for years to come, I expect. I will definitely... so. The idea is that right now I am building a application that we're going to be building as part of the, the workshops. Oh, and one other thing I, I didn't mention is I'm live streaming the entire thing. I'm, I'm building the entire thing in the open. So if you want to, you can watch me build the whole thing and then maybe you don't need the course, I guess, because you watch the whole thing be built. Many, many hours of watching my live streams. But so right now I'm, I'm building the app we're going to use and I am including in this app everything that like 90 percent of the web apps today are going to need right so we're we're talking about like regular cred we're doing uh, databases and authentication and we're doing even real-time stuff image hosting translation like internationalization like all of the things that you would need like 90 percent of the web apps on the web today by the way what what are you using as infrastructure um, can, i assume remix yeah yeah good question uh, so remix is going to be the framework the infrastructure is going to be on fly.io. That's what I deployed my personal website to. And it's amazing. Very transferable knowledge there because it's just a, a node app and a Postgres database. Or right now I'm using SQLite. SQLite is actually very surprisingly powerful. Um, I, I think it's definitely production ready. So we may stick with SQLite, but we'll, we'll see. My, my personal site uses uh, Postgres and Redis. But uh, yeah, we may just go with SQLite. And then, uh, yeah. So why why would you, what would be... What would be holding you back from using Postgres? Because I, I, I love SQLite. I think it's great on a phone. I think it's, I think it's a really good database symbol, but it is by definition not scalable. It is an embedded database. It is meant to be embedded in an application. It is not meant for an application that goes two or more servers. And, and I would argue that if your material does not have people deploying to at least two servers, how can you prove that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, AJ. I actually deploy my personal site to six regions all over the world. And the reason I chose Fly was because Fly supported Postgres clusters with read replicas in each one of those regions uh, in a very nice way. And so that's that's a great point. I definitely plan on deploying to multiple regions. We, we need to make sure that when we're talking about what things were meant to do, that we don't let that hold ourselves back. Because if we did, then we wouldn't be talking about JavaScript right now, because <laughs> JavaScript was totally not meant to do what we're doing with it today. And I think that SQLite is actually seeing uh, its own coming to the, the next level of what it can do. There's this, this technology called Lightstream that is really interesting, or, or LightFS that uh, enables you to have read replicas of uh, and, and synchronization of SQLite databases in multiple regions all over the world. So I, I'm still exploring that. One reason why I really like SQLite is because it's just so darn easy to develop with. 
like for, I, I don't even have to start up a, a Docker container with Postgres running on my, my machine and worry about ports and all of that stuff. So I really like SQLite for that reason. And especially when we're talking about uh, teaching people who've never programmed a day in their life, uh, it sure would be nice to not have to deal with all that stuff too. But again, that's not going to hold me back from really doing what you're going to do in the real well, world either. Could, so I, I do need to explore it further. I think the idea, I, I never heard of Lightstream before. I'm just looking at the webpage right now. That sounds cool. Because I, I think basically the two best databases in the world are Postgres and SQLite. Mm-hmm. I agree. And the one thing that I don't like about Postgres is that they have stopped shipping pre-built binaries for Linux, and they've kind of just left that up to the the distributions. But the, the reason I ask this is because, so I, you, you may know, I run webinstall.dev along with a, a buddy of mine, and our goal is to make it effortless to install developer tools so that, I mean, the, the thing that you just said, well, I don't want people to have to install Docker and then get all and worry about ports, that is kind of goal of webinstall.dev is just copy and paste this one command, you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then here's the cheat sheet for whatever that thing was, Postgres, for example. Here's the, the three or four things that you're going to need to know how to do with Postgres. Here's how to restart it. Here's how to edit the config file to add a remote user, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind it is that, and, and so for, from my perspective, I'm actually thinking, I love Postgres. If Postgres is not accessible enough to your users, I would love to help it be more accessible so that whatever problem you're encountering that you're like, ah, maybe I want to use Postgres to get that out of the way. Because as much as I love SQLite and I love SQLite and SQLite, I mean, like feature for feature, Postgres and SQLite are neck and neck in terms of excellent performance, being able to do full text search, just all of these great features that they have that other databases either don't have or just don't have the full package. But it's just, it's, I don't feel like SQLite is appropriate for web development because it's, it's literally not, it's not the use case. And it's, and, and there, there, there is a, um, there's an article you may have heard it, how to get 4 million requests per second with SQLite. And they talk about how they, did some special tuning and they compiled a special binary with a few option flags flipped this way and that way. And they actually run a, a real web server on SQLite, but then they've got, you know, other web servers on top of that that are, it's, it's, it's not like they deployed SQLite in a scalable fashion is that they have a custom setup that they're able to use SQLite at its core. Yeah. Well, so that's why what I'm building is very important that it's real world because in my opinion, if, if I can build something that is real world enough, then anything, any knowledge that you need for building this site will be enough for what you need to, uh, to learn to be a full stack web dev. So the idea is, and specifically what I'm building, I'm calling it rocket rental. It's going with the epic theme of space and everything, but it's like a, a Turo.com. So where you can rent out your car or whatever to people, this, you can rent out your spaceship. <laughs> and so the, it's going to have a lot of stuff in this for people to, if it works for this site, then it probably will work for what uh, what people are doing. Now, of course, I'm not going to have millions of users and stuff, but I have deployed to millions of users and I know what environments like that are like. <laughs> they're, they're very complicated. But for, for the purposes of what we're doing, I'm pretty confident that by the time I'm finished, I will have something where I can pull workshops out of that for at least 20 to 30 workshops out of that. So that's the idea is I, I build this website or this app and then we turn it into a bunch of workshops. 
If I can take the discussion to a slightly different direction. So uh, last week, we actually interviewed Diego Moura. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who uh, exactly the kind of person that's the target audience for your course. He told us the story of how literally he went from zero to hero within something like less than a year from not effectively not knowing any web development to getting his first web development job or something along these lines. And he's now at the, play, at the stage where he's actually like expanding his knowledge as he works. And hmm. one thing that I, I brought up with him and I and he, he had like, he found his way, but I'm not sure that it was the ideal solution. And I'm wondering how you're going to address that is the concept of, of mentorship and of how do you deal with a situation where, you know, the person gets stuck. And I'm sure you've had to deal with it in the context of Epic React. I mean, this is not new to you, but, you know, if, if I'm, I'm just thinking about the amount, amount of times where I've learned a new concept and I ran into some roadblock and I being able to actually ask, reach out and ask someone who I knew was knowledgeable in that specific domain made all the difference in the world. And by the way, he did bring up several situations in which he literally almost gave up exactly mm -hmm. because he didn't have somebody that who could he could reach out to and ask. And then eventually he did find somebody and that kind of resolved his issue for him. So I'm wondering how you're tackling that in the context of both Epic React and now Epic Dev, Epic Web. Yeah, yeah, sure. So that is that is challenging for sure to like it is very helpful to be able to have people who can guide you. And I've I've certainly had people like that in my career. I, I've never really had a person that I went to on a regular basis asking questions and things, but it can be helpful if you can find something like that. So what I'm doing with Epic React is I have this concept of learning clubs where you can, a person who wants to go through the material with other people that for accountability reasons, as well as like being able to talk with each other about things, they can put a group together. Uh, I facilitate that. And, and then they go through the material together on, on a schedule that uh, I, I have a recommended schedule that people can use. And then uh, that helps a lot with the accountability of actually completing the course, because like how many of us have unfinished uh, courses that we've purchased, I think most of us do. And so that helps with the accountability, but also being able to, to talk with people about the material as well, because maybe they one person gets concept A and the other gets concept B and together they can get them both. And then... Um, also, my office hours that I do on Fridays can uh, can help people as well. If they like are working together and they can't figure it out together, then they can come talk to me and I can point them in the right direction. And then my Discord server, the KCD uh, community on Discord, there are a lot of really knowledgeable people on there that can help each other. And I just encourage people to help other people because that is the best way for you to solidify in your mind the the knowledge that that you have is by teaching other people and answering other people's questions. And so through all of that, the, that combination, hopefully we take care of things. And, and then on top of all this, I think it's really important that I teach only the things that I, I know and understand. I know that sometimes an instructor will get invited to teach about some concept or some topic they know nothing about. And so they'll study about it for two weeks and then they'll teach it and then they'll move on. That is not what I do. I'm going to teach you what I actually know. And, uh, and I'll make sure that I deliver this content to real people uh, many times uh, so that I can preemptively answer the questions that people are going to have as they're going through trying to 
apply this uh, these learnings to their own projects. So in that context, and perhaps it's also a kind of a segue to our next topic of conversation, it seems that while a lot of the foundations of web development kind of remain static, uh, I don't know if I'd call them static, but stable, you know, like HTML is what it is, and so is CSS. They, they might be getting new features and capabilities, but the old stuff still works, and, and, mo- and the concepts remain true. So, uh, same with JavaScript, mostly. But if you're looking at the, at the frameworks, uh, for example, that are built on top of this web platform, and the ones that we are using to build those, those web applications these days, these seem to be changing and mutating and expanding at the breakneck uh, rate. Um, so the question in this context is both for you potentially, as, both as an instructor and as a, the content curator, I guess, is like decide, how do you decide what to put in, what to keep out, and how do you keep on top of all these changes in the industry? Oh, that's a great question. So for Epic Web specifically, what I put in is what's required for building the app. And so that, like, that's a really good test for me is like, if, if it's required to know to build this app, then it's going to be included. If it's not, then it's, it probably won't. And so that's actually why not all of the concepts that are in Epic React will end up in Epic Web because it's not all of those things do you need. Like a, a good example is some of the patterns for highly reusable components. We probably won't need to, to learn that to build an app. That's mostly for library developers and and maybe the component library developers at your company. Probably like maybe we'll get into some of that, but probably not. So that's that's my test of like, do I include it or not? It's do I use it when I have this app? So as far as like the fact that things are moving so fast and changing a lot, um, you do have to put your flag in the ground at some point. And I, I think that's okay. Like there's people still shipping Rails apps that are like just fine. Um, and that's, you know, they're... Um, they're <laughs> yeah there there's like you know cooler things that you could do better user experiences you could offer and stuff but like the app works um and you know you're shipping and probably making money off of it so like that's okay i guess so yeah we are gonna have to stick our flag in the ground at some point betting on remix is kind of tricky because it it is fairly new and so there will probably be changes i'm hoping that all those the more significant changes will happen before i i have to start recording my videos (laughs) but things will inevitably change the the platform gets new capabilities um and so uh, new frameworks take advantage of some of these capabilities. You know, uh, you were uh, talking about uh, talking with Mishko recently. Uh, he's uh, got Quick, and Quick would not work without service workers. Uh, just like would not be a viable solution. So, like the platform changes, uh, libraries and frameworks take advantage of those platform features, and we got to record some new videos. So, for the most part, the the thing I like about Remix is that it's so f- focused on the web platform itself that. Lots of the knowledge that you gain in learning about Remix is transferable to whatever it is that you're doing. And hopefully, it, we're able to maintain some of that stability that the web platform does have. So like, like I said, new features are coming and stuff. There may be new ways to do things, but the old ways will continue to work. And, and that's what I hope to be able to focus on is using fewer libraries that kind of come in and out of fashion and more uh, web platform stuff that's more stable. So now you put me at kind of a crossroads because on the one hand, we can talk about Remix 
which was one of the main topics that we brought you on to talk, uh, to speak about. But you've also brought up the concept of uh, building on the web infrastructure itself, which kind of leads to the topic of progressive enhancement, which you've also recently blogged about. So we can go also go down that route. Yeah, let's do that one first. And we, that, that will lead naturally into Remix, I think. Oh, cool. Then do we want to talk about progressive enhancement or is there anything to speak about even before that? I think we can go, uh, let's, I'm trying to think of a good way to transition. You, you could say, well, you were talking about the web platform and you just pu- published this blog post about how we built for the web. We'll and, keep that in. We won't edit it out more. because it's too funny. <laughs> Here, here's what you can say, Dan. <laughs> we're all about the raw. We want to we wanna rip back the covers and show how things really work. <laughs> all right. no, no, but seriously, I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way into this blog post you recently po- uh, posted. And it's really interesting because it comes on top of a lot of Twitter uh, discussions and threads and even a bit of uh, flame wars about uh, <laughs> how modern framework based web applications should be built and what the approach should be and whether certain techniques are are actually solutions or perhaps just stop gaps and, and and whatnot. And this always falls back on the discussion of frameworks versus the underlying platform itself. You know, we have somebody like uh, Alex Russell, who to an extent even dislikes the fact that we're using frameworks at all, rather than, than preferring the built-in capabilities of, of the platform. And given all that, what is progressive enhancement and why should we care? Yeah, yeah. So this blog post, the web's next transformation or trans transformation or transition. Yeah, I I, make, <laughs> I use those two interchangeably. It's transition is the correct. I just noticed uh, my slides use the word transformation. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm giving this both as a talk uh, as well as the, the blog post I just published today. But it kind of gives you a... A little bit hand wavy tour of the way that we've architected web applications since the beginning of the web over 25 years ago. The web, fun fact, actually, web or HTML 1.0 was never standardized. We started with HTML 2.0. I don't know what that says about our industry, but um, it, it was standardized in 1995. And JS came only three months after that. And then HTTP um, was standardized even later in 96. And then uh, CSS came a few months after that. So uh, kind of interesting how that all got started. But uh, ultimately, the, the web is over 25 years old. And what's interesting is the, actually, another thing that's interesting is the X, XML HTTP request wasn't standardized until 2016. <laughs> so we were using it like a decade before that. So that, that's kind of welcome to the web where we don't care whether it's standardized or not. But from the very beginning, we did have the standard of, of anchor tags and form elements. So you could navigate between pages on the web and you can make communicate back to the web server on the web with forms. And so once we got that, then we had the ability to actually build web applications. And we had a couple different architectures that we've had over the last 25 years where uh, as the web progressed or, or as the function or capabilities of the web platform progressed, we were able to do more um, than we could before. And so the, the blog post kind of takes you through each one of these and specifically shows you different uh, use cases of code and talks about which side of the network those uh, pieces of code are written so, and run. Um, and so we, I specifically focus on persistence, so interacting with the database, routing, taking a URL and calling the right code for it, 
data fetching. So calling into the data persistence layer and, and interacting with that data, sending that back to wherever it's supposed to go. Data mutation and then rendering logic. So what, what should be rendered based on the data that we have? And then UI feedback as that network tab, like it doesn't matter how fast your network connection is, somebody's network connection can be slow. Or it doesn't matter how fast your server is, like you don't get to control the network connection so that UI feedback is important too. And so for to, to start it off, uh, we had multi-page apps. That's how we, we started. That was like the only way to do it unless you wanted to have the user install some plugin on their browser. And that was... The, the persistence, the routing, data fetching, and uh, mutation and rendering, that was all on the back end. Like, that was the only place it could be. We did have um, JavaScript on the front end, and maybe there was somebody in there, like, throwing up a spinner when you hit submit on a form, but that probably didn't really happen, uh, certainly not in any MPAs that I ever saw. The good um, old days of ASP. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And, and like, we talk about those as good old days, but some people are still working in that. And so MPAs aren't, aren't like gone. Um, people are still building multi-page apps for sure. You know, for so many cases, that's actually, well, actually that augmented, which is your next step actually, is the, mm-hmm. is the technically correct solution. I mean, so many times these days I see people, I'm kind of jumping the gun, but so many times <laughs> these days I'm seeing people implementing stuff as single page applications where, you know, from a technical perspective, it would have been better served from being a multi-page application. But again, I'm kind of jumping the gun. And so you were, you, as you said, as you described, we kind of started with doing everything on the back end. And then I, I'll have to throw this in as well. Uh, something like, I don't know, 13, 14, maybe even 15 years ago, I gave a talk somewhere about the fact that like the tech world is kind of a yo-yo with the whole client server where everything is on the back end because it's a mainframe, then everything moving to the front end because it's PCs, then everything moving back to the uh, kind of moving to the back end because of client server, and then everything moving back to the front end and then to the back end again because of the web. And, and it's so amusing how we keep on, uh, how that, that pendulum keeps on swinging from side to side because every time we kind of, swing too far to one way and then we run into all sorts of problems and limitations which kind of gets the pendulum swinging the other way but then again it swings too far and you know that's the way it is i guess yeah you know i i like to think of it more as an upward spiral than a pendulum because i do think that things get better or at least some things get better with each transition maybe some other things get worse but I do think that there, it's not like we're just doing this just to do it. Like there, there are actual pain points. And in particular for MPAs, the pain point was we didn't have control over uh, UI feedback. So as the user clicked on, you know, submitted a form, we couldn't very easily put uh, some, uh, some spinner in place or, or whatever. Like you, you could, but like nobody ever did. It was just not a, a very common thing that we could do very easily. So like you couldn't have like multiple, like imagine if every time you like a tweet, you get a full page refresh. Yeah, I really like um, that example that you gave in the in the blog post. I think that yeah. that exactly highlights the, the problem, both of the response yeah. time, the indication to the user, and the fact that uh, the state of local uh, HTML elements is not preserved between navigations. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, and like the web platform is working on that. Like we're trying to have 
navigation is where you can have animated navigation with the page transitions API and stuff. But it's not here. And it certainly wasn't over a decade ago when we were doing MPAs primarily. And so for this reason, we transitioned. We transitioned to progressively enhanced multi-page apps. I call this a PEMPA. I don't think anybody's ever called it that, but now we're going to start calling it that if (laughs) if people follow. I think we Um, just called it jQuery. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. jQuery spaghetti was another one for, <laughs> for sure. But the idea here was now we want to write some code on the client. We're going to have all of the existing code that we already had. No, nothing changes on the server or nothing's removed from the server because progressive enhancement is about um, having a baseline of functional app. And then you use the capabilities of the browser to enhance the experience. And so this kind of happened around the time Ajax started being a thing. Microsoft Office web team came up with this XML HTTP request thing. Uh, people started using it, and then uh, Google Calendar and Gmail came out, and they were the big, like, first, the, probably the biggest apps to first use Ajax. And I've got an that, interesting story to, to tell you about it sometime. I, my, one <laughs> of my claims to fame is I think I, I myself created the first P, effectively PWA with all this stuff somewhere in the late 90s. But that's a story for another day. Wow, yeah. <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. IE4 um, would crash. I, I imagine it would. <laughs> yeah, so Pempas, you, you keep all the same server code, but you actually add more because now we have to have API routes for handling these Ajax requests that our client is going to be doing. So you have you have more code on the back end and then you also have all new code on the front end. So you have routing code that you're going to do prevent default when the user clicks on a link. You have uh, data fetching code for when the user gets onto a page. We got to go get the data for that page because uh, the server render, you know, the for getting the initial page, that document request, it's going to have all the data and everything. It's fine. But if you navigate to another page, you got to have some way to get the data for that page. So we've got data fetching logic now. Your forms are going to prevent default. So we're going to have data uh, mutation logic on the client as well. And then we have rendering logic on the client. And this is the big pain right here. So, so the, the rendering logic is the really tricky piece because with your, you, you have to have a functional app and then you progressively enhance, right? So you add JavaScript to make it better. And when, if we're talking about like the GitHub issues uh, UI, for example, when I land on the GitHub issues UI, if it's got comments in there or something, then the server, the Rails backend that they've got is going to have some sort of template that will generate each one of those rows of comments. And then I decide I want to add a comment. So I'm going to type in, I hit enter. I need to have some way on the client to be able to uh, render that new comment. So what that means is I have to have a template on the client that will, you know, and then do the DOM append or whatever needs to happen. So Here's the unfortunate bit. We've got this Rails template and then we've got this JavaScript template. These cannot be shared. Uh, There's going to be logic there. There's going to, all sorts of things are going to have to be duplicated between not only different sides of the network tab, but also different languages completely. And this was an enormous problem for progressively enhanced multi-page apps. And this is why we actually didn't hang out in this phase for all well, I, I guess we, we did hang out there for quite a while, um, but a lot of people really hated it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think yeah. there were like two, let's call them interim solutions. One, which was to really limit the stuff that you did on the front end to mostly yeah. just, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, to spinners. So at the end of the day, you still did most of the heavy lifting on the back end and not on the front end. The front end was uh, stuff that usually was not associated with routing, for example. So... Mm. 
you, as long as you were able to stay within the same URL, within the same address, you were kind of okay. So that's one thing that I think most of these applications did. And there were some interesting attempts, which I think ultimately all failed, of kind of compiling back-end code into JavaScript. Uh, I seem mm-hmm. to recall that kind of stuff, that you write your code, let's say, in ASP.NET, and then that ASP.NET automatically generates JavaScript for you that does the front-end stuff. But I yeah, think that pretty I, I, fortunately, that's not a route that ever became truly popular. I think Angular yeah, I, came I, along and swept all that away. There, there's there's a recent site that does that now. One of the GameCube homebrew sites that generates the, the files that you need to put on to be able to homebrew. Actually, not the GameCube, the Nintendo Switch, I think it mm. was. It's It's all written in C Sharp. And it's all, so it's megabytes of JavaScript oh, for yeah. a couple of selectors. Yeah, yeah I, I used GWT at uh, USAA during one of my internships. And boy, that was so awful. I did not like that at all. GWT. So yeah, so there, it was not a, a pleasant time from a developer experience standpoint. But we got an improved user experience, right? No more full page refresh when we, you know, favored a tweet. So that's that's good, I guess. But this is this is the reason why single page apps became a thing because they're like we need to have this user experience but by golly this dx is awful so let's just instead of duplicating templates on the server and the client let's just delete the templates from the server and in fact we'll also delete all the server rendering altogether so we can delete a lot of other data fetching mutation code as well by deleting all this this rendering code like lots of routing codes as well so now your router for your app at least for like getting the web app uh, for the document request is literally just like for anything that doesn't match a static file, just send them this index HTML with a 200 and we'll just pretend that 404s don't exist. And that that's de facto standard. Now, most web developers who are working on projects are working in a single page app. And we so we got rid of the code duplication, which is great, but we made everything else worse. Like so if we're thinking about the document request, that is way worse, way worse, because now you have to download the, the file, you have to download the JavaScript, and then you have to do the routing, and maybe you have to download more JavaScript because you're code splitting, and then you, down, uh, you do the data fetching in your component, and then you get the data back and, and you do the rendering, and oh, you rendered an image, now we got to go get the image. Like this waterfall effect just like destroyed the user experience, but it, we sure did improve the developer experience by deleting this, uh, I'll this tell you code something. duplication. It, ki- it kind of... Which developer? No, I'll tell you something, <laughs> AJ. It kind of, it, and, and Ken, it kind of worked for a while. It kind of worked until more or less 2007 or even 2010 before the mobile web became a thing. Because mm. w- when you were working primarily on, a de- on the desktop, you kind of could get by with this sort of a behavior. Obviously, there was still degradation user experience. You know, suddenly you had that, you, the whole concept of that flash of white because of the empty body HTML that was just uh, triggered to load everything. That happened on the desktop as well. But where it became totally unusable, I think, is the mobile web. When on the mobile sure. web with mobile devices, and by the way, in from my perspective, it's interesting. Wix used to work this way. When I joined Wix back in 2014, then the way Wix worked was using what is known as client-side rendering or CSR, of doing these single-page applications, but doing all the rendering on the client side. And like I said, it kind of worked because when I joined, 
back then, something like 80, 70% or 80% of sessions came from desktops. But then mobile really took off like a rock. And when you've got mobile connectivity and, and mobile performance, especially on Android, and especially on the lower end Android devices, it just can't fly. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, unfortunately, single page apps are not necessarily more perform. Well, yeah, uh, just what you said there. It's not just how much you're downloading, but how much you're executing as well for those low end devices, too. And so we went from running a bunch of code on our beefy servers to running a bunch of code on these teeny devices that, yeah, maybe we there's more compute than what we sent people to the moon with, but it's still a problem. And so, yes, this is this was definitely an improvement for the developer, for anybody who wanted that user experience that we were looking for uh, that drove us to the Pempa. But like AJ was saying, it's not actually all that great <laughs> from a developer experience standpoint compared to an MPA. It is definitely improved from a, a Pempa, but not is, from a, an MPA. What is Pempa again? I missed that when you... That's the progressively the enhanced... Uh, that's that's, that's having the templates apps. on both ends of doing yeah. of of doing rendering both on the back end and on the front end using separate code bases and even using distinct programming languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. that my my comment earlier was just I don't like breaking things that work. I think if you if you want to add new functionality that that could be good because not all new things are good, but it's certainly not good to break something that worked. Breaking HTTP status codes <laughs> yeah. for for cuteness, but it's beyond cuteness. I mean, we had a real problem. I mean, keeping were, those was, templates was, in sync yeah. was effectively impossible. It was not possible to add features when you had to implement every single feature twice in two different yes. programming languages, two different developers, it was just not workable. You know, that famous story of how, how Angular came to be because they worked on some project for uh, six months and then Mishko came and proposed Angular, the first iteration of it, and implemented it in, in less than six weeks because he, could only, mm-hmm. he only had to do it on the one side, not implement everything twice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and he did it by himself and they had a team. Like, so like, it's a, it definitely was a, an enormous well, improvement from that standpoint. Well, I don't, breaking the index.html and the 404 was my complaint. Oh yeah, I, I agree with you. You don't, you don't have to, Angular didn't break that, or at least I'm, it, I'm It's not even worse than that. that. And then service workers came around at some point, no, but then service workers just kind came, of been misused. Yeah, service workers came along a whole, a long time later. Much later. Yeah, the, the bigger issue for, from the get-go was search engines. I mean, when you were doing those client-side rendered single page applications initially the the search bots just couldn't handle that which resulted in awful hacks of again kind of having to again generate everything twice just because of the search engines the, the only benefit being that the version that you created for the search engine you didn't really care about layout and stuff like that it was just basically pushing out the content so yeah so there were a whole bunch of issues but you're you're absolutely correct uh, AJ that when we moved to that place we we really hamstrung the web in a lot of ways and and it mm-hmm. wasn't really always obvious to the people to the developers who were doing it what they were losing in the process. Yes. And this is actually very important because when you're when you enter a transition, you don't typically understand uh, all of the trade-offs that you're making uh, because like nobody's done it before. It's like uh, when you were dating, you would have 
all of the, like, you feel Twitter pitted about this person, they're amazing. And then eventually you learn all their warts and you're like, oh, geez, uh, they're not so great. And then you move on to somebody else and you're like, wow, they're amazing. And then you find out later they've got problems. And, and I, I think this is the same way in technology. And then you become an adult and you settle down with one person despite their flaws. Uh, yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. Because they are uh, settling with you despite your flaws. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, my, my wife chose me for who well, I am yeah. and she's been trying to fix me ever since. <laughs> yeah. Well, in any case, we we did for for a lot of people the for a lot of people the problems that spas had were not big enough problems to justify either going with a, a poor user experience with a plain MPA or uh, the terrible developer experience with code duplication across these different uh, languages. So. Uh, they just went with spots. They're like, oh, I'm behind my login screen anyway, or, you know, I don't need SEO, or who cares about status codes, or, you know, whatever. They just didn't realize the impact that it was. And um, I don't think that for, for a lot of them, I don't think that they're wrong. And especially with uh, more modern implementations of single page apps where you have s- static site generation, for some uh, use cases, like that's sufficient. Uh, there are a lot of really significant shortcomings to static site generation. And there are very few use cases that can leverage that effectively, especially considering that CDNs can be your SSG uh, server yeah, as well. Yeah, but, but with, static, with static site generation, at least you're not delivering an empty HTML. I mean... Yeah, yeah it's better than the yeah, empty HTML. Yeah, because sure. like you said, one thing, because as you said, there are actually two things that kill you with this type of an approach. One is the, the processing, which is especially problematic on low-end devices, but potentially even more significant, at least from the user initial perspective is, again, like you said, the waterfall. One of Mm -hmm. the things that people don't realize about HTML, when you put the content into HTML, HTML is is streaming and it's the, the browser uses it as it comes down the pipe. So as soon as the browser encounters that image tag, in the down in the HTML that's still downloading, it's immediately going to start downloading that image. Whereas mm-hmm. with that SP that single page a- application model, that spa model that we just described with client side rendering, like you said, you first download the entire HTML. When that's done, you download and parse the JavaScript. When that's done, you down you download and parse some AJAX. And when that's done, that's when you finally can start downloading your images. So like mm-hmm. your images are like round four uh, versus yeah. versus being downloaded essentially from the get-go. And, you know, we've got mm-hmm. hip, tricks and hacks to work around it and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I, I recently tweeted that if you're using a single page application, uh, a client-side rendered, the client-side rendered approach, and, you know, a lot of people still are, you're not going to have good performance. And if you're on mobile, you're going to have poor performance by definition. There's a, mm-hmm. almost nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Well, and and the other thing is, like, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, you just use SSG and now you get your image right away. But, like, can you imagine trying to do static site generation for Twitter or Amazon or, like, so many of the yeah, other but for me, uh, sites in the world? I have to say that SSG is just a certain optimization on SSR. It's yeah. The, so, mm-hmm. so let's get to that before... Uh, yeah, yeah. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, 
I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. It's different to talk about an application versus a website, which I think predominantly we're talking about applications. But in, in Amazon, I really, do you think that Amazon is faster to render server side than client side? Oh, yeah. I mean, you need to fetch a, a couple of details in an image. Like so much faster text to, to, to render. Ser- but, that's exactly what how? they're doing. I mean, 90% of the, 90% of the site is the same. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, sure. I mean, Amazon is not optimized. They, they've got client-side transitions for sure. But like when, when you land on that page, you better believe that they're optimized. Like the amount of money that they lose for not being optimized <laughs> Is, is significant. Um, so I think we'll move on from that. Yeah, and, <laughs> and because we're kind of jumping the gun here because there are certain interesting optimizations on all the models that you can talk about, like edge computing and the gem stack mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But I think, again, these are optimizations on top of the basic approach. So I, I would prefer mm-hmm. that we first talk about the next stage before we get yeah. into these details. Yeah, sure. So so the next transition that I'm really excited about and and observing in the web frameworks and everything that's happening is what I'm calling progressively enhanced single page apps. So I apologize if I'm interrupting you, but I think you kind of skipped a half step. I mean, because we were at client side rendered and before client side rendered, we had SSR, but without potentially without progressive enhancement, just as SSR. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I think that Gatsby and Next.js with their SSG, static site generation, that, and yeah, like, I guess like React and Next both SSR, SSR. React and SSR, theoretically, at least, from, like, you know, way back when in 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I would put that as kind of like, maybe, it, it's really hard to, to place that. I, I think it's maybe a small bump, uh, but I wouldn't call that a transition. I'll put it this yeah. way. The term has kind of fallen out of favor. I'm not hearing it used anymore. It was really big a while back about the concept of isomorphic code, about the concept of Mm -hmm. what React enabled to an extent with the VDOM. The fact that you could take the same code that you ran on the client, the the client-side rendered stuff, that, for example, the Angular model, but now you could also run that same code on the server side. And and you kind Mm -hmm. of solved that double template conundrum by running that same JavaScript or now it's TypeScript code on both ends, both on the server side and on the client side, so that if you did that transition uh, on the, uh, if you were already in the client and you did the transition, it was all handled client side. But if you press like F5, then it was all rendered server side. And it was the same mm-hmm. code and the same templates that, that did that thing. And I think we 
kind of got to that point before people kind of were thinking explicitly about progressive enhancement. At least that's the way that I personally am reading it. You might disagree with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree that that does, um, that does make sense and probably should be called out specifically. That Maybe that, to me, that was just it's such a short-lived thing that I'm not really considering it a transition um, because we're very quickly moving into what I'm calling progressively enhanced single-page apps or PESPAs, where the idea we are borrowing lots of that uh, capability of SSR React or SvelteKit or, or Svelte or whatever it is that you're using or Angular now too. But the, the key here with a, a PESPA is that routing, data fetching, mutation, and rendering is all shared across, uh, that, that code for that is all shared across the network chasm. And in particular, it'd be really nice to have a framework for that. But for as far as the what the uh, behavior of this architecture looks like, your document request looks just like a PEMPA. In fact, this a PESPA is very similar to a PEMPA, progressively enhanced multi-page app. In many ways, the only dis- distinguishing characteristic is that the code is shared and it's the same uh, on both sides of the network chasm. So your, your document request looks very similar to even an MPA, except it just loads JavaScript when it's finished. Your client-side navigation looks very similar to a, a PEMPA, except your, your routing logic on the server and the clients, are, it's the same. Your, your rendering logic between the server and the clients is the same, and so you don't have to worry about doing that duplication anymore. The same thing with another thing that really separates a PESPA from what these SSR SPAs are doing is that the mutation code is the same, whether you're doing, and it's, it's, it's the same whether or not JavaScript is on the page. And so what matters about this, it has nothing to do with the fact that we want to, this to work without JavaScript on the, on the client. It's about everything to do with the fact that we want the mental model we had with MPAs. And so whether you're doing an inline mutation like a, you know, favoriting a tweet or a redirect mutation like creating a new GitHub repo, in either case, the mental model and the way that it works as far as the code that you write is going to be the same. And so this brings us back the simple mental model that we had with MPAs. Like it was people who've been in this industry for 25 years or, or like even over a decade are like, my goodness, why is it so hard now? It is like building web apps is so much harder than it used to be. Why is it so hard? And the reason that it's so hard is because we lost the mental model by bringing everything into the client. And now we have caching to deal with. We have to cache the state that's actually on the server. If you can pretend that your app is written like an MPA, then your your Redux store is actually just the database. There's no store there. Everything lives in the the timeline of a network request. And so with a PESPA, because of this particular architectural distinction, we can get the same mental model that we had with an MPA where, where a network request is made to do some sort of mutation and then all the data on the page is updated uh, automatically like it was with an MPA. You never thought about updating the, the data that was on the page with an MPA because you got a full page refresh and you regenerated the whole document with whatever the latest was. And so the PESPA architecture has a focus on that. So um, to try to put it into a practical perspective and, and please do correct me if, if I'm if I got it wrong. Let's say I have a form on the page. Let's say this is the, to make things simpler. This is the first page. I'm the, the first page that I'm getting got into. Let's say it's even the sign up form. So it's like the very first mm. page. I get that first page re- uh, directly because it was 
rendered on the server side by the, the, the server side. It's, you know, JavaScript code or TypeScript code, but running on the server side, either at runtime or at build time, doesn't really matter. It provides, it, it downloads directly the HTML with that login form. Now the user fills in the form and clicks the, the submit button. And this could be handled in either one of two ways. It could be handled by either doing an actual form submit that is falling back to the built-in browser default functionality, not even having a JavaScript to intercept, just letting the browser do its, do its thing and do the HTTP post. Or alternatively, it could be intercepted by some JavaScript that cancels the, that, the default behavior, instead wraps it up and does, let's say, some sort of uh, an AJAX an call, gets back the, the result, and updates the and does the routing and and the updates client side. And if I understand mm-hmm. correctly, what you're saying is that w- with this new model, and I'm still I still haven't memorized the acronym that you're using. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's okay. And the thing is that either one might happen, and they're both okay. If for some reason the JavaScript hasn't loaded yet, then I'll use the default behavior. If the JavaScript has loaded, then I'll use the JavaScript-based behavior. And it might be a question of network timing because the user clicked really quickly before the JavaScript downloaded. Or it could be like uh, an intentional decision on the part of the developer saying, in this particular case, I don't feel like downloading the JavaScript. It's not needed. I'll just make do with the default behavior. Or maybe... I do want some enhanced functionality and I will use the JavaScript in this case, but not in that case. Am I getting it correct? Am am I describing it correctly? Yes, you're you're describing the behavior correctly, but the the intent, um, I think, is a little different. So the the point isn't that we want less JavaScript in the client because we absolutely do. Like MPAs were, there's a reason we're not just building everything as an MPA. Uh, We talked about that, full page refreshes and UI feedback control. So we do want client-side JavaScript. The reason that this matters is because it gives you the simple mental model of an MPA. So you can build your entire application pretending that there's no client-side JavaScript. And then you can go back in later and add in some nice little enhancements with just a tiny bit of code without making big architectural changes to the way that you're writing your code. And, And then when the application actually performs, then yeah, maybe there's a, a failure in loading the JavaScript or something like that, which actually surprisingly happens quite a bit. And and it will uh, perf- perform just fine either way. And so that's that's a nice, to me, that's a nice side effect. But the real, the major benefit to this is that we get just the, a wonderfully simple mental model for building our application. And then um, on top of that, we also get a better user experience because the application is ready to go as soon as it, the HTML is downloaded, uh, for the most part. Now, there, there are certainly some applications that certain they're totally not going to work without client-side JavaScript. But there are a lot of pieces of each of those applications that probably will work without client-side JavaScript. A good example of this is Figma, where you've got this canvas and you can't render canvas on a server. And it may, like you probably wouldn't even want to. I mean, you could probably pull up Playwright and like render, you know, some image or something like if you wanted to, to to speed up the perceived performance there, I guess. Um, there are optimizations you can make for sure. But ultimately, you're probably going to want to have client-side JavaScript for that. But there are a lot of features of Figma that are absolutely like a lot of what Figma is, is not the canvas. And so there are other pieces that would benefit from a user experience standpoint from progressive enhancement 
But really, the, the major benefit here is a, a simpler mental model. Uh, another thing, though, is that PESPAs push a lot of code over to the server, like tons and tons of code. Most of the data mutation and, and uh, data fetching code all goes on to the server. And by doing that, we also improve the performance for the user as well, because there's less code to download, less code to execute. And it, so like it ends up making it a lot faster from that. Yeah, but that well. that's kind of that kind of depends on on the framework and how you're using it because some you know, at least for now in so many cases, you know, all the code, the framework code and the application code downloads the client side whether you really need it or not. Yes. Uh, well, so I, I would say, like, I, I know you're alluding to quick and resumability and, and just downloading the pieces um, that, that you not want, just quick, I think is great. Not just quick. I know that React is working in that direction as well with stuff like uh, React server components and and there's hi- the concept of islands of hydration. So, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. quick is kind of like, for them, it's kind of, kind of like front and center. They're kind of focusing on that. But they're not the only game in town in you know in dealing with this yeah, with this issue for sure. And for for me, that is another optimization that a PESPA could take advantage of. React certainly doesn't. So the 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 next lead into this is like now Remix is an implementation of a PESPA, like that you get a PESPA out of Remix. But others are following. Like SvelteKit is adopting this, the same behaviors. Uh, Solid Start also is doing this. But like the what I'm talking about is we're taking probably 50% of the code that developers work on daily is around state management. And we're just throwing all of that away because we're pushing tons of code over to the server. And and then we're adopting the mental model of an MPA. And so there's just a lot of things you don't have to think about when you have that mental model of an MPA. And so we push a lot of code over to the server. We delete a lot of code that just doesn't need to exist anymore. And then we can further optimize things in like with islands or architecture or... or so again, uh, if I'm pulling it, if I'm pulling it to, again, to a practical example, something that, you know, I at least need those real life examples. So let's say I, I have a fairly strand, standard CRUD application, which is just a sequence of forms. And in the old client side, rendered approach. Everything, I might have, I don't know, a Redux store on the client side containing all the data and occasionally it gets uh, synced back to, to the server every, every once in a while. And I guess that's not the approach that you're going to take with something like with the Remix. So with the Remix, am I going effectively back to being a multi-page application? Like every time I click on a form submit, it's going to do an actual form submit or is it going to do an an ajax call but effectively not maintain or maintain a minimal amount of state in the client side maybe just the component ui state and nothing beyond that that the applicative state is all moving back to the backend and if so how yeah. how is it managed on the backend in that case yeah yeah so oh, like to, just to answer your question it will work like ajax like a, a fetch request because we do want that you know ui feedback control and, and no full page refresh but what the standard behavior for a spa is uh, to do a, a lot of logic for what apis you're hitting and, and different things on the client with remix and uh, just with pespas you typically just have a very a thin client here that just knows how to to re-implement the or, or emulate the behavior of the browser. And so 
we prevent default and then just do the same thing the browser would have done. And that is like a couple hundred lines of code of, of very complicated code. But it, if it's built for you and well tested, then then go ahead and use it. Uh, in Remix, we call this the transition manager. And so that manages all of the, the states of that network request that's happening. It, and then it manages updating the data that's on the page um, like the browser would in a full page refresh scenario. So with that thin amount of JavaScript, then we, we make the request and then your backend code which in Remix is in the same file as your UI code, is going to um, handle like talking to a database directly if you want to, because it's backend, or using a private key for some uh, third-party API because it's backend and you don't worry about sending private keys to the client. Or talking to like 30 different services, um, you know, sending a, like setting up a queued email or whatever. And typically, if you're going to do something like this in a spa, then you have to have an API route for all of these things. And and there's enough friction there that you're like, oh, I'll just do a fetch with these. Like, I can do that. I have cores or whatever. And so in, in any case, like there, you end up with a lot more code on the client because you're basically re-implementing the transition manager all over the place. And a lot of people are using stuff like React Query, which helps a lot with that. But still, uh, there's a lot of code that you don't have to write if you're using, if you have built things like a PESPA. You know, it seems to me now that the, when I'm listening to the way that you're describing it is that effectively when we move, we, I'm talking uh, us, the, the web development uh, ecosystem, when we trans- started transitioning past the client-side render to also taking advantage of server-side rendering, we kind of kept all the client-side rendered baggage. We kept all the state management very often on on the client side, talking to potentially even various microservices directly from the the client side and managing the the state logic on the client side. What you're saying is that you're basically, it's it's more than a technological shift, it's, it's a mental shift of saying, let's throw away all this stuff that existed on the client side We'll go back to that old M- old MPA approach of having those endpoint those, those form submission endpoints, but instead of be of it being an H like the actual built-in browser functionality, the same endpoint is being hit by the AJAX call that's being handled for, generated for you by the Remix infrastructure. Yes. Yeah, precisely. And and Remix is just a, an implementation of a PESPA. And I don't think that you'd want to build your own infrastructure or, or framework for a PESPA because we've already got one. It's Remix and it's great. And eventually Remix will also support other UI libraries. So if you're not into React, like that's, first of all, I'd say uh, Remix turns React into something more akin to a template library than anything else. And so the things you don't like about React are probably not as big of problems in Remix. But additionally, uh, Remix will eventually support Vue and it will support others. Somebody on the Remix team, uh, Jacob, was just yesterday working with Enhance, which is this new fun web components thing, and building uh, Remix support for Enhance just for the fun of it. So uh, you'll get the PESPA behavior out of whatever <laughs> UI library that you want because so much of, of what a PESPA is, it's just like some some way to render some UI and then uh, Remix just wires up um, all of the, the routing and everything for you automatically, which is pretty, pretty stellar. Yeah. But, um, the, the interesting thing here is that you might be trying to minimize the role of React and that's a great thing, don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure that React really wants to be minimized. Spe- <laughs> specifically, they're adding a lot of functionality and capabilities that kind of push back against this minimization by forcing particular architectural solutions, like 
things like the the the, the React uh, server side uh, components. They kind of influence the the way that you're doing these sort of things, or or the or the suspense mechanism and the selective hydration and the suspense boundaries and and stuff like that. Can you really ignore that all this baggage when when you're implementing? this type of uh, progressive enhancement-based uh, meta-framework? Yeah, that's a great question. So React is doing a lot of really cool things. And, and there's one feature uh, coming soon to Remix called uh, Defer, which allows you to uh, to stream. Well, well, so first of all, you can stream right now. No, no problem. Like you can, with, uh, with Remix, you can stream HTML, but most of the time that doesn't matter be, or, or make much of a difference because by the time you start streaming, you've actually already got the HTML and like... That's going to, you're going to save maybe three or four milliseconds. Uh, congratulations. But what's really cool about Defer is that it takes advantage of suspense and concurrent features in React 18 so that you can actually start sending the HTML before the data, before certain bits of data have actually finished loading on the server. And so this is actually very, very cool. I want you to pay close attention to what this, uh, what happens. Let's, let's imagine you are a product page. You've got this product page. You've got the image. You've got the title. You've got the description. And then you've got reviews. And we'll say that the reviews are really slow. I get, for some reason, the back end for that is really slow. So with uh, the server rendering that page, you have two options. You can either wait for all of those reviews to show up before rendering the page, which is not going to be good because you're going to lose sales. Or you can, well, I, I guess you've got three options. Or you can just not render that page on the server at all and just do client-side rendering, which is also problematic for various reasons we already talked about. Or you can just say, well, I'm going to just render the UI that's important. And then when the client shows up, then I'll go and make a fetch for those reviews. So in that's and, and that's probably what you would do. Yeah, and that's effectively so, the Jamstack approach. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, except the Jamstack doesn't typically, well, you would static site generate. Uh, well, that yeah, page. although um, at a yeah. certain point in time, the guys doing Jamstack uh, decided that they're no longer going to be tied to server side, to static site generation. And but then yeah. everybody stopped. Yeah, because they saw the shortcomings. Yeah, and then and then everybody stopped using the terms Gemstack. And then <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, the rise right. and fall of the term Gemstack has been kind of meteoric on both ends. I have to I have to say. I'm glad that you see it that way, Dan. That's exactly how I see it as well. So yeah, so that's that's how you would do it with with uh, with Gemstack. So here's the problem with that. So first, you you get onto that page, you've server rendered the stuff, you download the JavaScript, and now you're making the fetch. So this is like basically a document request in a spa, like client-side render problem, right? So that like that's fine, because most people are, aren't going to look at the reviews right away. But what if we could make it so that we started that network request for the reviews as soon as the document request showed up? And so that's what Defer allows you to do. So you're, in Remix, you have your loader function that runs on the server. As soon as the request comes in, Remix is like, okay, server, go get your data. And then it, it's waiting for the data to come back. But with server rendering, those reviews, like that's a problem because we can't wait for those reviews because they take too long. So what we do is instead we say, we'll send you back all of the, the data that's like really important, but then we're actually, we're not going to wait for the reviews. We'll just give you a promise for that. And then Remix is like, oh, you just gave me a promise. Okay, I'll go ahead and render the, the UI and then in your UI, you say, hey, for this particular thing, if it's a promise, then I want you to render this fallback. And so it sends the fallback and it streams that out. But the HTTP request continues or stays open while we're streaming stuff. And so when that promise finally resolves on the server, it sends the rest of that to the client and then uh, React 18 streaming 
will swap out the fallback with the latest stuff. And so in certain situations, you could actually save yourself 500 milliseconds, maybe a, a full second or two by optimizing when you actually kicked off that initial request. And, and, and I have to ask, why is it better than just doing it on the client side because the framework does the heavy lifting for me or... So it's, it's, that is really nice. It, it actually feels like promise teleportation is what we call it. Because like it's, I had a promise here and now I have a promise here, like on, on the server and now on the client. It's amazing. But primarily because the user experience is so much better. And what's really cool about this is the API that Remix gives you for this is such that you could A-B test this. You could say, you know, do my conversions really get better if I wait for the re- reviews or not? Because it, it's just a matter of like, an if statement in your loader. Like, if they're in this bucket, then do this behavior. And is this a Remix feature or is it a React feature or is it a Remix feature built on a React feature? Yeah, exactly that. So React has this capability for for streaming. Remix takes advantage of that capability to have this defer API. And so uh, others will probably implement something similar to this eventually. It is not trivial, but it, it is now you've got a reference implementation you can take a look at. But uh, anyway, I brought all of this up just to say that React does have some unique things about it that we, we don't want to just kick React to the curb. A lot of people, especially if you're watching Twitter, you think that React is already dead and buried. That, is, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, React is still three times more widely used than all the others combined. So it's like, it is still so enormous. Yeah, and jQuery, um, by the way, is still... I think nine times more commonly used. I, I, I recently found out that jQuery UI is six times more commonly used than React. Things on the web never die. They hang on yeah, forever. Well, I, and once you've passed that, a certain threshold, I mean, MooTools is dead, but once you've passed a certain threshold, you'll be there forever. No, I, I think we can explain the jQuery thing because of WordPress. That's true as well, uh, but WordPress is another thing that will never die. Yeah, that's... No, that doesn't take it away, but... But let's let's have a distinct, some distinction between code that developers are working with on a regular basis versus code that people use. You know, th- there's a big difference. The fact that jQuery is being used by the web that doesn't matter as much as uh, for us as developers and like what we should be, you know, using our mind space with. Like, it's not like there are. 10 times or 100 times more developers working with jQuery. That is not true. Oh, yeah, for um, sure. But, right. th- but that said, you know, there's this amusing saying, which is, which like all amusing sayings, has a significant grain of truth in it, which is that while JavaScript developers are busy picking frameworks, PHP developers are, are busy choosing which Lambo to buy. Uh. Because <laughs> there are fewer of them, but they're kind of responsible for a bigger part of the web, effectively. So that did, did that saying come around because somebody uh, big in the PHP community posted a, a picture of their Lambo? Probably. And all of a sudden, everybody thinks that Lambo, like PHP developers are crazy rich. That is not true. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would be very interested. Like that, that meme actually bothers me a bit um, because I would be very interested to see what the, the pay rate for a PHP developer versus a JavaScript developer is. But an actual like stat, and I would expect uh, I, I expect they're probably pretty similar. I, and the thing is that I, I I I kind of I have a problem with all of these payments. We kind of took a detour, but but we're there, so I'll mention <laughs> it anyway. Uh, I, I think you know the, the whole concept of what is a web developer is so problematic. I mean, the term covers so much ground, and that makes all of these income comparisons really problematic. I mean, somebody building hmm 
uh, websites in, in WordPress is often called a web developer and somebody, I don't know, coding Gmail is, is called a web developer and they're certainly not doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and are probably not paid on the same grade or scale or whatever. And it's really difficult to, to do comparisons between the two. Anyway, I kind of took us on a detour. Yeah. But, but, well, and, but, but and I'll just mention point, one other my thing. My point, just to finish yeah. that, was that I, I still contend that once a technology becomes sufficiently, like passes a certain threshold on the web especially, it will never die, which means that there, there will always be people doing React stuff, like forever. Uh, 100%. So, so statements like React is dead because I don't know whatever framework du jour. It's you know even if that framework becomes really successful, React is here to stay. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And and because React has such an enormous lead, it, it is here to stay for a very long time. So yeah, absolutely. And and on top of that, React has not stopped innovating. You mentioned earlier in passing that uh, React has selective hydration. It does with uh, with suspense boundaries. You'd, uh, if you have multiple suspense, suspense boundaries, it will hydrate the ones that are... I'm not sure if it does this today, but it, they absolutely are working on this where whichever one you interact with first is going to get hydrated first and it'll replay events. And things. I, I really will need um, to dig into how that works because that seems to me to be a I, well, obviously, suspend boundaries uh, tend to be how hard boundaries in context of managing state, not just framework state, but also applicative state. But still, the fact that the application is effectively uh, initialized or executed in a different order based on user interaction seems like a source for so many potential bugs that it isn't even funny. Mm. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. I think that this is maybe one of the reasons why people complain about React a lot is because you can do uh, some things wrong. Like there's the idiomatic React and and people are like firing fetch requests in their, the render body of their, their function or whatever. But in any case, React is definitely innovating. And, and so I think it's here to stay. But still, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the ability to decide which UI library that you want to use is very interesting. And in the future, Remix will will probably support a lot of these others that have uh, take different uh, stances on how they optimize the rendering. But I would say all, all of that like is exciting to talk about like, oh, what, you know, hydration or selective hydration or resumability or whatever. Uh, for most of the time, I think you're, you're not saving as much as you could if you just first started with the architecture of a PESPA because that will improve your the performance of your application a lot more than you know how many milliseconds you're saving on the the type of hydration. Out of, out of curiosity, how big is that remix core, whatever, that gives you that PESPA functionality that you need to get started? Yeah, yeah. The so I probably should break this down because I you're gonna have the initial bit of React and React DOM, which I, I can't recall how big that is. Yeah, I, I think altogether the hello the hello world is is of remix is something like 50 kilobytes or something. Okay. And for like if you've got a single page, so another thing to keep in mind is, is if you have a login screen or a marketing page that where it's like super, super important that it's very fast and all of that. 
uh, you could just not render your script tags and you don't get any JavaScript on those pages. So like, if that's what you're going for, you can't get much faster than just not rendering the JavaScript. Like, okay. But, but even then, while the user is experiencing or looking at the, the site and stuff, like, sure, go ahead and download the JavaScript and progressively enhance the experience. That's the, the cool thing there is that the behavior is going to be the same either way or, or that the functionality will be the same. The behavior will be different because uh, full page refreshes and all that. But even, even if you wanted to, like, let's say that, oh, I, I really need to have this as fast as possible. I don't want to hydrate. I don't want to download it JavaScript that's not needed or something. But I just need this like one tiny little thing. Like you could like shove JavaScript, like a, a script tag in your HTML. Like that, that still works. And so if you just needed this tiny little interactivity, uh, you can go all pempa on it. And, and there's a thing that is clicking for me because of your explanation, which is associated with comments I've seen around Remix for a while and I didn't totally get is the fact that a lot of people, you know, they they like Remix because it kind of takes them back to the fundamentals of the web. The fact that you're you're working with forms as if they're forms, you're working with links as if they're just links, because I guess of this thin layer that Remix installs, which provides multi-page application-like behavior for a single-page application type li- uh, framework or library. Yeah, I, I'd say it's multi-page app mental model with single-page app capabilities. So you're, you're back to working with links, with forms, with stuff like that. You don't need to, yep. to, and, to think about really uh, more complicated mental model like Redux this or, or Mobix that. Precisely, exactly. There, there is no state management application state management to speak of when you're using Remix. Uh, you just don't need it. That's like 30 to 50% of the code that, that spa developers are working with every day is state management related. You just pretend that doesn't exist. And that's, well, that's what you get with Remix. And on, on top of that, Remix, you so you get a better developer experience, but you also get a better user experience. And this is unique. Every other transition was improving one or the other, going from MPA to PMPA, progressively enhanced multi-page app, that was 100% about the user experience. And then going from a PMPA, a PEMPA to an SPA, that was 100% about the developer experience. We weren't trying to improve the user experience there. We were just sick of template duplication. And now going from an SPA to a PESPA, that's giving us both a user experience and a developer experience improvement. And, and on like another thing, you mentioned you're just working with regular forms. This is even better than MPAs from the developer experience standpoint too. Like you get the simple mental model, but you also get the with with remix in particular you get the form in the same file as the backend code that is going to be dealing with that form submission uh, and you get type safety across that network boundary as well which is so so nice and so like it from a code organization standpoint you also get that on top of what the mpa offered as well so yes we are definitely spiraling upward going back to the server but also getting a lot of really, really nice things that you, I mean, in PHP, you could like do data loading in the template and stuff and uh, and stuff like that. But this think, is different think, in a very good yeah, way. Yeah, I think that the statement you just made about type safety is especially important, uh, in particular in the context of, you know, so many people, so many organizations moving over, over to TypeScript. I mean, like it or hate it, we are, or even, you know, AJ, statically typed JavaScript 
with the JSTOC. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's syntactic sugar. And mm -hmm. yeah, the fact that you can guarantee that a particular field has a particular type and that type is preserved uh, across the, the network is really powerful indeed. Yeah. In, in fact, like this is one of the one of the things that GraphQL got really popular for. Uh, the other thing was data overfetching and underfetching problem. There's like that tight coupling. So let's just say, let's let's have a marriage ceremony and now like we have GraphQL. By the way, I um, hope I don't upset remix. I hope I don't upset anyone, but we, we kind of mentioned it in the context of Gemstack. But does it it seems to me like GraphQL is kind of going away as well, at least from what I'm seeing. Is that your experience as well? I'm actually observing that also. And there are probably various reasons for that. There's uh, TRCP or TRPC. I can't remember which. Yeah, TRPC. Yeah, but I'm not sure that you even um, need that. I mean, I mean, if you're using what is that, I've never code, heard of that. And which means that effectively you're compiling your front end code and your back end code together, which ensures type safety across both of them. Mm -hmm. And you might yeah, you that, might just be using a Ajax and, and you're fine. Yeah. So, so the, there, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, TRPC is is one of them that I, I think some people are just like, oh, let's just go back to, to that. And it's really nice to get type safety. Wait, what is TRPC? Uh, it, it's just this handy little library. I, I posted a link in the chat. It's if you go to trpc.io. I don't want to uh, divert our, our attention over there. Remix also offers the same sort of type safety across the wire. And also because your loader and action, the, the, that code for loading data and mutating data only runs on the server, uh, you don't have the data overfetching problem anymore there either because it's all happening on the server anyway. And you can filter down to specifically what your UI needs and just send that back from your loader. So you don't run into that problem either. But there is like there are some other things that we use uh, or that GraphQL can be really useful for even still. And at PayPal, we were working on this where we had like so many services with so much data. And so like bringing uh, identifying where which service has the data you're looking for was really, really hard. And so GraphQL being a unifying API for that, that they were still working on it when I left. So I never actually used it, but I helped w in conversations with uh, about it and that. I'm pretty sure. I, I totally agree. It, it well, when you're bringing when you're bringing in data from a bunch of of backend services, especially from different vendors, yes. then then using something like a GraphQL, which can normalize the data and get, and you can slice and dice it before you know downloading every every everything, that's useful. But when you're yeah. primarily using your own data and from you know from a sane amount of microservices, then it's the, 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 the cost and complexities from my experience is often not worth it. And you run into all sorts of issues you, where you can't cache stuff and, and it, it, mm -hmm. it, becomes, it becomes an issue on it. And you need something like an Apollo server or whatever, and it, it becomes a real yeah. hassle. I, I completely agree. Um, I never personally used GraphQL on um, anything of any great significance. And part of it was because of that. I, I would have used it at PayPal for sure because of that reason I, I talked about. But yeah, and actually, no, I did I did use GraphQL on PayPal.me, uh, that rewrite we did that, that uses GraphQL. But the lots of the problems that GraphQL solves are not problems you have when you're using Remix or a PESPA architecture where you've pushed everything over to the server anyway. And so you can absolutely use GraphQL uh, if you want to uh, in your loaders and actions. But uh, there's not really much of a, a reason to introduce 
a bunch of complexity that uh, GraphQL typically does introduce. So I, I have also observed, maybe it's just because of my own circles that I'm in, but I've observed a lot less enthusiasm for GraphQL. And that, that's to be expected with the hype cycle, right? So we would expect people to find where it's useful and use it there. Hey guys, quick edit, jump in real quick. How much longer are we planning on going? I know I got to get back to work here pretty soon. Yeah, uh, I as far as stuff I wanted to share, I talked about Epic Web, talked about Remix and Pespas and all all of that. I, I'm i pretty satisfied. Uh, Dan, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Well, they're not really, you know, we kind of touched on them, like the the React server components and how they might fit in. and uh, and But it's not really that important. I think we can start to, to wrap up fairly soon. Cool. All right. Well, with that, we will start to wrap up. We've gone way long today, but only because there was so much good stuff to talk about. I think we will um, need to have a glossary of your terminology. I still can't remember all your acronyms. <laughs> we will need to put them in the show notes. Yeah. It's it's a it's a problem. I'm I'm barely hanging on with MPAs and SPAs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that, I mean, you can make up terms, but you can only make up so many at a time. Yeah, you know? yeah, you know. You gotta, so the the challenge. Uh, a lot of people actually criticize me for naming things. Uh, I I've been known to name things, and as a professional hype cyclist, uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, but uh, I I found that it's just a lot easier for people to talk about something and for something to become popular when it has a name. And like, whether or not we have an acronym, it's just like, do you want to say progressively enhanced single page app or do you want to say PESPA? I think after a while, we get used to the acronyms. So yeah. Well, but I, it's, gotta, it's gotta gain traction first. And then yeah. you, you, sh- you know, first, first you seed the idea and then after you've seeded the idea, then you shorten it so because people are familiar, you know, you, first you say your name, then you give your nickname. Well, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah, AJ. <laughs> but it's 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 information overload because progressively enhanced SPA is less mental burden than PESPA because too many new yeah. concepts. Okay. <laughs> well, Kent, you know, you touched on one of the two hardest things in, in computer science, right? One of them is naming things. Cache invalidation. Yeah, there's cache invalidation and also off by one errors. Yeah, <laughs> all, all two of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's the ultimate right. good one. But yeah, but on a serious note, I mean, the whole concept of uh, what's the name of uh, the gang of four who wrote uh, the design patterns. The whole concept of design patterns is about the fact that by naming things, we cre- we create a common v- vocabulary that enables us to more effectively and efficiently exchange ideas and and teach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's much easier to say I'm using such and such pattern rather than starting to explain the details of the architecture. And like, and in that exactly. context, in that context, what you're describing here with uh, the progressive enhancement and whatever the acronym is, is a design pattern, is a design pattern for web applications. Yes, exactly. So. All righty. But well, yeah, now, a glossary would probably be helpful. <laughs> glossary, yes. Yes, uh, if you could write one up for us, uh, Kent, and submit it, we'll uh, include it in the show notes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Homework. <laughs> All righty. Well, thanks for coming on, Kent, and enlightening us with everything you're working on. We will have links for as much as we can in the show notes and also Kent's promised uh, glossary. With that, we'll move on to picks. Picks are things that we'd like to talk about that may or may not be tech-related. Could be food, books, you name it. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. AJ always has some interesting picks, so we'll start with him. All right, so one that I've been meaning to pick for a while, but I think I forgot to pick, is Extraordinary Attorney Wu. It's kind of family-friendly suits. So if you're familiar with the TV show Suits, just make that family-friendly, and then everything's in Korean, so you have to read the subtitles. But it was such an awesome show. Instead of the protagonist being someone that, well, actually, she still has a photographic memory, but the reason she has a photographic memory is because she's autistic, and that's her superpower. So... It's just, it's a charming show. It's very cute. It's very fr- family friendly. There's uh, a little bit of a, a lighthearted love triangle. You learn a little bit about Korean law, maybe or maybe not. I don't know how much of it is made up, but I just thought it was a great show. And I think that that's a Netflix exclusive, unfortunately. But fortunately, you probably gave up on your Netflix ban after gave up on being so bullheaded about weird stuff. And then I think I had something else to pick. I'm, I'm going to pick four. How, how is that going? Is it is Off your uh, project uh, actually running? Yes. Yeah, so, I know that you're building, effectively building a four-wheeler. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't that bad. But I, well, I learned this. Anytime you're going to replace a component in a four-wheeler particularly, because four-wheelers are particularly inexpensive, as opposed to, say, a car, where all of the components are larger. Anytime you're about to replace a component in a four-wheeler, you should look at the parent component that that component belongs to and see if it's not about the same price or far cheaper to replace the entire system than to replace the piece. So, for example, on the carburetor, there was a busted little nozzle that is a fuel injector. So basically you push this thing, it creates suction. So when the carburetor is dry, say it sat for a while or something, or or there's some environmental, or you ran out of gas and you, you just ran it dry. So when you put gas in, you might want to push this little injector to cause suction to make the gas go into the carburetor. Well, that, that replacement part is $10. If something's wrong with that part, there's probably something wrong with the carburetor because it didn't get corroded and busted by just being great. And so the carburetor, the cost of replacing the carburetor is going to be somewhere between $30 and $50. So if you're going to spend $10 on this one piece and then you're going to find out that you know you need to replace something else inside the carburetor, well, now you're almost at the entire cost. And if you actually had to take the thing apart to replace the piece, in time and cost, you are well over budget than just 35 bucks. So, you know that if I take that to the logical conclusion, you might as well just buy a new four-wheeler. So in this case, it turns out that with the first four-wheeler I bought, that I would have I would have had a better deal if I had bought a, a four-wheeler that cost maybe twice as much. Because, but it was, but I did this on purpose because it was a thing process. It wasn't. I want to get a great four-wheeler. It was, I want to get a four-wheeler that's going to force me to learn the components. So I learned the limits of what I feel comfortable with myself and what, because the thing is four-wheelers break. I, I mean, that's one of the complaints. Growing up, I, my dad's always fixing the four-wheelers. And so that if I buy a four-wheeler, I don't plan to go easy on it and baby it, right? So I need to, to be familiar with knowing, okay, if I'm, 
out on a ride and suddenly it won't start. What do I need to check? What do I need to do? So I bought a junker on purpose. And it wasn't that much of a junker, but it was, I mean, it ran. But but now I have two four-wheelers and they're both the same. That Honda basically made the same model of four-wheeler for two years, the Fortrax 300, which everybody loves. It's an excellent four-wheeler and it's super easy and super cheap to find parts for. But yeah. So I, let me get this right. You bought one four-wheeler. You kept taking parts off of that four-wheeler, putting in new parts and using the old parts to build another four-wheeler. No. And now you have two four-wheelers no. and you're not sure which one is the original one. <laughs> no, no. I Two four-wheelers. Because it's a philosophical question now. <laughs> no, no. I have actually not traded parts between the two. They both run. We were able to go out and ride them a little bit this weekend. Uh, unfortunately, the trailer that I bought had a problem, which I won't go into right now. Uh, so we, we didn't get to the destination we intended. We went somewhere a little closer instead because of the, the issue that popped up with the trailer. But, and that I was not intending to get a trailer to, to fix. But in short, they put a much bigger tire on one side than the other, and it didn't actually fit in the casing. So going uphill, it caused the tire to burn rubber against the, the tire guard. And, and that, that was, you know, could have exploded the tire. So we turned that one around. Anyway, yeah, I'll just pick those two things. I'll just, I'll just pick uh, Extraordinary Attorney Wu and the Fortrax 300. And then also, actually, I do want to, I do want to point out one of, one of my favorite resources from Kent here that I do have up on creedsofcraftsmanship.com is the uh, dry, wet, and aha uh, programming avoid hasty abstractions, which I think that was a well coined term. And I, I think the article does quite well at explaining the difference between the three and AHA is kind of the appropriate middle ground. And then uh, we mentioned JS with types earlier. You can go to jswithtypes.com if you want to watch the presentation on how you can have strict typing in JavaScript without any of the TypeScript nonsense. Just plain vanilla JavaScript that you can put in a script tag if you want to, or run a node if you want to, uh, without any build steps. Yeah. Uh, thank you for mentioning AHA. I got that acronym from Cher. She is, uh, and I mentioned it in the article. But uh, yeah, that, the original acronym wasn't an acronym. It was just like the name. I called it Moist. No, that one. And no, uh, yeah, definitely. That. Yeah. No, that... <laughs> so I, I asked on Twitter, like, who can come up with a better acronym? And Cher was like, uh, avoid hasty abstractions. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, you, you coined oh, I it. I thought you were you being Cher like the musician, like Sonny and Cher. Yeah, that was good. Thank you. All right, Dan, what do you got for us? Ah, uh, unfortunately, this time around, I don't have that much. I have two picks that I already picked before. Maybe I'll expand on one of them a little bit. The first one, I think I already mentioned that I'm going to be speaking at uh, this conference in Australia in December. It's uh, Web Direction Summit uh, 2022. It's uh, on uh, the, the 1st and 2nd of December. Uh, the lineup looks amazing, even though I'm in it. So many great people, Tejas, who we've had on the show, and Vitali, also known as uh, Smashing, Mr. Smashing, and Thomas Steiner, who we also had on the show, and Henry Helvetica. So many great people uh, will be there, and also me. And the uh, great thing about it is that uh, since we're flying all the way from Israel to Australia, and it's like a 20-something hour flight, we're going to take this opportunity to actually tour Australia for something like three weeks. 
And I have to say that just preparing for it, it's, Australia just, just looks to be awesome. I can't, you know, this, it looks, hopefully this is going to be one of our best trips ever. It's also going to be the first time in a, like in a really long time that my wife and I have gone on such a long trip without any one of our kids because they're big enough to, to stay at home now. And so that's going to be my first pick. And, you know, if you can attend this conference, it looks like it's going to be great. So I highly recommend it. Web Directions Summit 2022 is going to be my first pick. My second pick is going to be that pick that I picked each and every time, which is the ongoing war in Ukraine. What's happening right now is especially terrible. As of the time of our recording this, the Ukrainians uh, blew up, apparently uh, blew up uh, the bridge that uh, the Russians built uh, to Crimea. And uh, in, resp- in retaliation or in response, the Russians are firing just missiles and drones at intentionally at civilian targets all over Ukraine, you know, killing people, blowing up power stations, water supply, stuff like that. It's really, really awful. And what can I say? Anything that you can do to help the Ukrainian people, please do. Uh, and that would be my second pick for today. Alrighty, I will go and save the guest for last, although I prefer to think of me as the best for last, but I won't split hairs there. A couple picks. One, you know, along the lines of the humor is an article that I saw on Wired Magazine via Hacker News. Neuroscientists unravel the mystery of why you can't tickle yourself. And it's quite an interesting uh, article regarding some studies that were done, and I forget where it's at, but really sort of one of those funny things about why you can't tickle yourself, but other people can tickle you. Uh, and they, they measure brain activity before and during and after and, and so on. So quite fascinating. And then we get to the, the dad jokes of the week. I share dad jokes that meet my very high standard of publishing. Believe it or not, there are some dad jokes that just aren't worth posting. So these meet my high standards. So first of all, I was, you know, I was pretty lonely. I was dealing loneliness at one point in my life. And then I glued a cup of coffee on top of my car. And then everybody started waving. I couldn't figure out why. I figured maybe they just liked the coffee. You know, I have a, I got a smoker a little while ago. It's a Green Mountain Grill, not the Traeger that most people associate with smokers. And ribs is one of the favorite things I like to cook. Uh, Costco has some really good ones that are already pre-seasoned. But when I eat them, I only eat the second, third, fifth, seventh, and 11 ones because I like prime ribs. <laughs> and then finally, did you know that if you eat an entire cake without cutting it, you technically only had one piece? Or you could just bake a really big cake and then the That's pieces true. will be big as well. Yeah. I think you're missing the point there. But anyway. <laughs> Those are my jokes of the week. Kent, to you for the final. All right. I do have picks. Um, So my first pick is Epic Web. If you haven't uh, already gone over to see what that's all about, I encourage you to do so. EpicWeb.dev. And then I and actually maybe I'll I'll put a a link in here for my introduction blog post that explains a little bit more what it is and has a, a frequently asked questions and stuff in there, too. I also created the Call Kent podcast. This is where you can go to my website and ask me a question right in the browser, uh, record your question, and then I listen to your question, I respond to it, and then uh, my server just sticks them together with the magic of FFmpeg with some bumpers and stuff and puts it up on a podcast. So I've got over 100 episodes on that, and yeah, it's pretty much a week daily thing for me. 
So check out the Call Kent podcast. That's really then, cool. Um, I also, it is cool. Yeah, it's actually pretty fun. It's a good way to be able to answer the questions that people are asking and not have to spend a ton of time doing it because it's pretty quick for me. So yeah, it's great. Do um, the and source then, for that available per chance? Oh yeah, it's all open source. So if you want to really? build your own business out of it, go for it. My GitHub, you just go to github.com slash kencydots slash kencydots.com and it's all up there. It's all remix. So yeah. And I, I guess I should mention if you if you go there and you're like, wow, this is this uh, website is way over-engineered, you're wrong. It's over-scoped. That's the difference. <laughs> so most developer blogs don't have a podcast software feature I- involved, which uh, eventually I could turn into a product. <laughs> I've got like four products in my website. So yeah, I also made a map on Google Maps that has every conference I've traveled to and as well as those that I'm going to. So I've got seven conferences scheduled in the future that are in person and two more that are remote, but those don't go on the map. But uh, yeah, so if you want to meet me in person, check out that. And uh, yeah, it's actually kind of fun. Uh, And then the last thing is another podcast. It's not mine. It is called Build Your House Yourself University. And it's, oh, I should actually look at who produced this. Her name is, shoot, I don't know what her name is, but she's really good, really, really good. And so I, I, uh, if you are looking into building a house or you're just interested in what it takes to to build a house and like, yeah, it's Michelle Nelson. There it is. Then uh, it's a very well produced uh, podcast. She's not even like a professional house builder. She's just building a house herself and sharing what she's learning. And she's research is really well. And I'm just impressed by the quality of the podcast itself. So those are my picks. All right. So with that, we will wrap up this marathon of a podcast. Uh, thank you to Kent for coming on and telling us what you've been working on lately and, and going down rabbit holes, as we always like to do on the podcast. Thanks, to Dan and AJ. And if or I forget, other than Epic Web, are there other ways that people can get a hold of you or give you money or yell at you? Uh, yeah. So best way to to keep up with what I'm doing is Twitter. I'm at Kenzie Dodds. I also have a newsletter, uh, so that's even better. Uh, so you don't miss anything that's most important. So you just go to KenzieDodds.com, scroll down to the bottom, give me your email. And then there's the Discord server as well. Uh, it's a good place to keep up with with what I'm doing. So yeah. And then there's, if you want to learn uh, testing, testingjavascript.com is good. If you want to learn React, epicreact.dev is a good spot for that too, as far as giving me money. <laughs> always good all right well thank you for that we will wrap it up and talk to everybody next time on javascript jabber thanks everyone see ya bye bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more